You're listening to What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Here's your hosts, Tommy and Derek. Six months ago, I crossed paths with a computer programming student who also happens to be a bench scientist with a PhD in biochemistry who also happens to know a lot about data ethics, which obviously means I am really excited to share today's chat with you. Let's go. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello again, our friends. At the end of our shows, you hear Christy say that we release bi-weekly episodes. But we fell off the track recently, and that's entirely my fault. I spent some more time in Germany recently, about a month, where I had this really great opportunity to meet my in-laws after I got married at the end of this past summer. And I also used that time to meet a whole bunch of researchers before and after a really, really excellent opportunity to hold a week-long Uh, event called a working group where I got to work with some of the best researchers on the planet on my project in privacy and surveillance studies. And of course, focusing on all these other things really threw off Derek too. So I want to thank you all for being so attentive and so supportive as we've been juggling so many different things going on in the last nine months or so. But more recently, I've really thrown a wrench into our our timing and we're going to work really, really hard to get back on track with that. Part of what's been keeping me so occupied is, you know, my research, uh, trying to find some time and space to focus on data and automation and social change and all those fun things that, you know, really excite me. And so when I was trying to get this podcast going recently, I also tried really, really hard to organize my entire trip to Germany to make sure that I wasn't going to miss a very awesome guest speaker that recently visited us in Kingston at Queen's University, where I work at the Surveillance Studies Center. I, of course, couldn't make it happen. As I'm sure many of our speaking points were going to address some of the confusions that I have about my subject matter, I was particularly bummed out to miss this talk. But luckily, we're going to have the speaker on our show today, who brings to us her burgeoning expertise in an area with a background that seems completely unrelated to anything I do. Laboratory-based scientific research experimentation in the areas of protein biochemistry, enzyme kinetics, immunology, molecular biology, cell culture, and glycobiology. A perfectly self-evident blend of experience for discussing data in society, right? Let me explain. In the early summer of 2019, I set up a meeting between my center, the Surveillance Studies Center, with another center that I collaborate with very closely called the Center for Advanced Computing. At this meeting, we discussed having a guest speaker series, a joint speaking series between our two centers for our colleagues and our students so that we can bring a computation perspective into surveillance and privacy and vice versa. My friend and colleague, Chris McPhee, who is the director of operations at the Center for Advanced Computing, came to this meeting and he brought with him one of his students, a user support analysis intern named 
Dr. Karen Reese Milton. In the meeting, the two of them explained to me that Karen is programming a laboratory information management system software application, and it was delivered very a very reflexive discussion about the project's software development lifecycle. We determined that our attendees for a possible talk on this focus would invite a really, really cool open conversation about really difficult subject matter, data, ethics, algorithms, and software design. All things that make my brain hurt in a very, very, very good way. So I said to myself, this is awesome. Not only are we going to talk about hot button, confusing, and exciting things, a student has an opportunity to showcase her work. This is the one of the best things that I get to enjoy as a postdoc. It's getting to engage and help build scholars, to help them open doors, to work with people that do things completely outside of my wheelhouse, regardless of what level of development they are, so that we can all look at the world a little bit more comprehensively, a little bit more critically, and see how we can proceed from there. And so that was basically my, my frame of mind at the time. I'm going to help a student out. And oh boy, how I couldn't have been more wrong. Fast forward four weeks later, I'm on my bicycle, flying down the boardwalk of what once was, merely months ago, a very sunny Kingston waterfront. I stopped, had a sip of water, and admired some windsurfing daredevils flying off of the tops of waves. Looked amazing. So I sat and I watched for a while. One of them got out of the water and sat down at a bench near me to rest. I'm a very social person. I have no problem talking to people in public. I really wanted to ask about windsurfing. So I approached her and guess who it was? Karen, the programming student who is an awesome windsurfer and as I soon found out, is a very, very experienced and very accomplished scholar. Karen has 24 and a half years of experience in labs as a research associate and as a research coordinator who has also punched out 24 academic articles. From there to programming, how does one go from biochem to data and ethics and why? In my own selfish pursuit of finding answers to my confusion, our mutual curiosities about otherworldly subjects enter into the fold in today's conversation. For example, the difference in demands of the hard sciences in North America and the UK, where Karen was born, raised, and educated. The matter of whether or not a good lecturer also needs to be a good researcher and vice versa. Our opinions on whether or not cancer can and will be cured before we die. And a chat about the differences in intellectual maturity between young people entering university on both sides of the pond, which is a rather topical chat at that, given that the real and fake homecomings have come to pass once more in London and Kingston, Ontario, Canada. But to kick this conversation off, I wanted to keep it a bit light. I am humbled by Karen's experience and her expertise and her professionalism. So I looked down the middle what the heck is down the middle between what Karen does and what I do? What's down the middle of everything? It's Google, of course. That's good. Let's start there. So Karen, let me ask you, do you ever use Google to help you out when you're stuck in the lab? Oh gosh, yes. Yeah. 
if I'm if I when I worked in the lab and I was I I was trying to grow a certain cell type, and it it wasn't growing at the right pace. You just Google it and it tells you what it's like. What food should you put in the medium that you're given? You know, you can adjust the salt concentrations. You can adjust various nutrients that you add to it, and then all of a sudden it look, goes from looking like a sickly cell to a healthy cell. You but, can Google cell. So oh, yeah. biology yeah. on the fly. A lot of the time I'm using uh, peer-reviewed articles, though. So I, I probably would use, rather than Google, I would use PubMed. So they're peer-reviewed, so I know that okay, sure, it, I, it's someone with a PhD who's who's written it. So you're not going to talking. read like a blog entry from some teenager's no. home chemistry no, lab. No, no. I'm more like, when I Google, the articles that I would read would be the ones that are in the peer-reviewed scientific journals because I know they know the basics ah, about cell culture. Okay, all right. Yeah. Tell me about some more things that you've tried Googling in the lab. Like, and I mean non-PubMed-related stuff. What can you get away with? Well, what do you actually, trust? a lot of the time when I'm trying to do the data analysis side mm -hmm. of stuff, there's certain scientific software that I use but if you use the help command on that, it's not very helpful. It's often more helpful if you Google it and you'll find someone has done something very similar to what you want to oh. do. Yeah. And you don't have any problems trusting what you see when it, when things show up on Google? In the age where we constantly yeah. talk about filter bubbles yeah. and Google's algorithms yeah. being very selective about what you see on a search mm -hmm. result list first. No, do I don't. Like a lot of the time before I was doing this program, I was doing some database stuff and I was just using Microsoft Access. But now I use more complicated software than that. But when I use their help, it's not very helpful. But if I Google how to do something in Microsoft Access, you get a lot of really good YouTube videos okay. coming back. Yeah. And you can quickly, like to start with, I would just put it on, I would have it running at twice the normal speed and quickly just scan to see if this one is any good and and if it is then i slow it down and listen to it at the regular speed and because you quickly find you can waste a lot of time listening to garbage so you quickly <laughs> yeah, you listen to it twice the speed and then you go oh no this one is telling me how to do it got it yeah okay and you're here with a biochemistry phd working in a computer lab which we'll talk about more in a minute but i want to hear more about how you started as a professional in biochemistry and ended up in Kingston because you're not from here originally, no, right? No, I'm from the UK. Where in the UK are you from? So I was born in England and then when I was six, I moved back to where my parents were from. I moved back to Wales and I grew up in Wales, in Swansea. And then when I was 18, I went away to university, also in Wales, in Cardiff. And when I was 18, I actually thought I wanted to be a medical doctor. So I went to medical school when I was 18. You went to medical school when you were 18? Yeah. In Britain, you go to medical school at 18 and you go for five years. So wow. it's a little bit of a different system. And uh, so you, you do the preclinical sciences in the first two years. So you do biochemistry, anatomy, physiology, oh. do a bit of sociology and psychology as well. Interesting. Yeah. And then you do second MBE. So I passed that and I got distinction in biochemistry. And then I went on to the last three years, which are the clinical science, the, the clinical medicine. So that's when you first meet the patients and you take histories and you start doing exams. 
And I quickly realized I liked the preclinical sciences as opposed to the clinical medicine. So then I went and did a, I, I completed the biochemistry PhD at BSc instead. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I got a first class in that. So I thought, oh, I don't need a PhD. I have a first class. So then I go to work at Unilever for a year and I worked as a, a research assistant, but and it was good. I worked in personal products, in um, hair care products. But I quickly realized that if I wanted to, in the hard sciences, if you want to be the person who's leading the team, you need a PhD. Otherwise, you're only ever going to be somebody's pair of hands. Oh. Whereas I wanted to have some intellectual input. So then I went back to uh, university. I went to Southampton and I did a PhD. Fascinating. And the PhD was in biochem. Biochemistry. And I think something was, it was entitled Inositol Monophosphatase Structural and Functional Studies. So I did a lot of protein biochemistry, uh, a lot of, st and af after I did my PhD, then I worked at Celtech, which is a biotechnology company. And I was a research and development scientist in drug development because in my PhD, a lot of my studies involved, you would add, I was working with enzymes. So they're the proteins in your body that actually do things. And they're often the targets of drugs. So I was, when, when drugs interact with these proteins, they cause changes in the structure and you can, you can see pretty pictures when you use spectrophotometry and uh, yes, you can see what's going on there. So. Wow. Okay. So sorry, what was the PhD in again? So it was inositol monophosphatase structural and functional studies. And why we were interested in studying that it's believed to be the target for in people who have manic depression, they sometimes are given lithium and lithium acts on that particular enzyme. So it, they don't get those extreme swings of highs and lows. But we wanted to find out how is lith so we, we would study that enzyme and how it interacted with lithium to see what was going on. Where does whatever it is that you just said, PhD, <laughs> fit into the the larger rubric of PhDs available in the hard sciences? And I'll call it the hard sciences okay. because it's so foreign to me. Mm -hmm. So like in biochemistry, I'd say you have my interest has always been more in the protein biochemistry. A lot of the time today, you'll hear a lot about uh, molecular biology, which is a big field in biochemistry and DNA and DNA sequencing. But I've always been, so to me, the DNA, that's just like, that's the template, that's the blueprint. That's from the DNA, you are able to, that's the code to make the proteins. Whereas I've always been more interested in the proteins because they're the things that actually do things in your body. Fascinating. And this is where you discovered your interest, but which you realized well before you did the PhD, obviously, you learned that, if I recall correctly, you were interested in preclinical and not clinical studies yeah. while you were training mm -hmm. for med school. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And did, did you have the foresight then to see that that's the specific focus that you wanted to have in biochem? This yeah. Proteins and en yeah. enzyme portions. Yeah, because I was, I, I'm, I was still very interested in medicine, but I was more interested in the research side of it rather than the daily seeing of patients and fixing your patients. I was more interested in finding that cure for cancer. So you can 
like there's many physicians who also have really big labs and they do research but i i i always thought i don't see how you can be a good researcher and a good physician i think you have to pick one or the other and i wanted to be a good researcher so i felt that i should do the phd in biochemistry and is it different do you think for researcher professors is a good professor a good researcher and vice versa or do you think people should focus on one or the other maybe this is just a social yeah. science problem no there, there are some who are good at both but no there's a lot of them they're good researchers or they're very good teachers very good professors but not often the both often the same not often both no no a lot of the time if they're really into their research going to give a lecture is like this is time that I could be doing research and I have to lecture. It seems the stakes are quite a bit higher mm -hmm. in the hard sciences, right? And like, yeah. I don't work in a lab. Yeah. This is my lab. This is your lab. This is my lab. This very. It's a dry lab rather than a wet lab. It's as a we dry. Said. Yes. <laughs> dry suit versus wet suit. That's right. For yeah. those who don't know, yes. we are having a little giggle about the suits you can wear to stay warm or cold. When you're windsurfing or in the water diving, mm -hmm. you can wear wetsuits and dry suits yes. too, right? Yes. Fascinating. You know, the, the, the stakes are really quite a bit higher, um, I think, because in the social sciences and the humanities, we don't, most of us don't sit in a lab working with patients. Most mm -hmm. of us don't sit in a lab studying protein structures mm -hmm. and cell structure. Uh, we don't, we're not predisposed for the most part to cure cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm passionate about social problems. I'm passionate about political problems. I'm passionate about cultural issues and, mm -hmm. and policy issues. But very seldom does somebody's life hang in the balance mm -hmm. or the survival of, of a population. Is that something that drove you through most of your studies is anticipating making a contribution that you knew would make a difference? Oh, yeah, that's important to me. Yeah, yeah. And this is something you realized very, very early, mm -hmm. but yeah. not, not at the beginning of med school. I mean, you made a choice to go into med school. Yes. Were you thinking about that when you were 18? I think what it is when you're in high school and they have the career guidance counselor. And if you're good at the hard sciences, you are often pushed into medicine because you have to have straight A's to go into medicine. They go, oh, this person can get straight A's rather than thinking about, it's, is this a people, like you have to be a real people person, I think, to be a doctor. And when I spent that first year in clinical medicine, it's really hard to, you have to talk to the patient and make them feel at ease. And at the same time, you have to diagnose what's wrong with this person. And it, it's, it's a hard skill. And uh, I'm not sure that I'm that much of a, people person i think i like to be in my little lab and i think our <laughs> listeners are going to prove otherwise you're a pleasure to chat to i don't i don't think that's 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 true at all okay is it a hallmark of a good doctor where you are from and where you were raised to be a good people person yes. the reason why i'm asking is because that is not the case here okay i'm not trying to throw any mm. specific doctor or industry under the bus yeah but because we have a crisis in Canada, where we have a shortage of doctors, mm -hmm. we often deal with people who don't want to be there. Yeah. We often be deal with people who are burned out. Yeah. And frankly, and I, this is just my personal opinion, and uh, I'm t 
totally fine with people objecting, even taking offense to it. I've met a lot of doctors, especially in ER, who are just miserable people, mm-hmm. rude people who are mm-hmm. impatient and they don't want to mm-hmm. deal with you. I think a lot of it is the the people that you recruit to medical school in Canada and North America compared to in the UK. Like in the UK, I went to medical school at 18. This is the norm. You go from high school to university. Whereas in Canada, I think there are some schools where you can go from 18, but the majority of people have to do another degree before they go into medicine. They've even done a master's, they've even done a PhD. But in the UK at 18, you go to medical school. So at 23, you're doing your residency. And at 23, you have lots of energy. You can work those long hours that a resident works. But in Canada, the resident is almost, is, is quite a few years older. And they've done all these other qualifications as well. It's, yeah, 23 year olds can stay up all night. It's, it's like when you're in university, you can go to a party till two in the morning and still show up for your 8.30 lecture. And, but by the time you're in your late twenties, it's harder to do that. And I think you get a different kind of person going to medical school in the UK because you can go from 18. You don't have to have a master's. You don't have to have a PhD. So you tend to get people who are often better with people skills. Fascinating. They're I'm, not, they've not spent so much time in school and doing degrees. They've gone out there and done other things. Or they come, they get people from different walks of life. Like I think of one of the guys who probably one of the best doctors I've ever known. He was a carpenter and then he went on to do medicine. It's really good. How old was he when he finished carpentry? He only did it for a few years. So it was only in his early 20s, but I'm not sure he would even be someone that would they would consider for medical school in North America. There is a belief in North America, especially in social scientific circles, that part of the reason why social science students struggle in their undergrads, we take them out of high school too fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe they haven't had enough life experiences. Like another thing that they tend to do a lot in the UK that they don't do here, which might give you students who can think a little bit more, is the gap year is a lot more common in Europe than it is in North America. In North America, you seem to have to go from school straight to university or straight to college. But a lot of people in the UK, I didn't do it myself, but a lot of people when they're 18, they don't go to university until they're 19. They spend a year and they might travel. They might do volunteer work. They might work or they might work for a few months and then travel. So they get a little bit more of an idea of what's going on in the world. And it, when they go to university, they're more focused because they have some idea of what they want to do when they finish. This is really intriguing for me. When I was a research fellow in Germany last year, I had this exact conversation with a close friend of mine. Okay. And he said that part of the reason why young Europeans heading into their undergrads have so much energy and have so much focus is specifically because they spent a year or two volunteering. Mm -hmm. Volunteering culture in Germany is huge. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I've been to Germany eight times. I didn't realize this until last summer that a huge part of the population, well over the majority of the population, either has volunteered for a significant period of their life or is still doing it. Is it the same in the UK as well? 
I mean, because at that the level of population where all of these people are taking yeah. a year and then they're going in the studies, do you think that people are learning at a young age in the UK, like in Germany, to develop an appreciation for society and community and industry? I suppose I think about my sister and her two daughters. My sister, for many years, was a girl guide leader, and that's a volunteer position. You're not paid to do that, but you know she had such a big part in the teenagers growing up and then her daughters would often come when they go to camp her daughters would come and they'd help and yeah they that's all voluntary yeah yeah and another reason why i'm asking is because when i had this conversation with this friend last summer mm -hmm. he was totally dumbfounded by this this notion that students party as hard as they do here like fake homecoming at Western University or homecoming here at Queens. This doesn't seem to be a norm anywhere in Germany for undergrads. It's unheard of. When I was uh, 22, 23 years old, during one of my first trips out to Germany, I went to visit my friend who lived on the, the north border, Greifswald. And my friend said to me, great timing. There's a huge party happening at the university this weekend. And I thought what he meant was like tailgate party in somebody's field beside the university or downtown uh, mm -hmm. in lieu of the university. No, it was on campus. All of the faculty buildings opened up. Every floor of every building had a DJ and a pub. And we would go in and you would just grab a drink or whatever. And this, this is what was explained to me. And I thought, my goodness, what are the professors going to do? Well, they hang out with the students. Yeah. <laughs> the students are going to drink with the professors. That can't be very exciting. No, no, Tom, you don't understand. This is great. Mm -hmm. This is like one of the coolest parties you're going to go to. You get to just talk one-on-one -on -one with your profs, have a beer, get drunk yeah. with them and have a cigarette. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, I guess profs can party hard too. So my, my expectation going into it was like what I see here. Mm -hmm. It's going to be nuts. People are going to be fighting and laughing and carrying on and dancing aggressively. And at every kegger, every house party I ever went to in my undergrad was was not tame by any means. I thought that's what I was getting into. And when I got to the university, to that party at that university, it was boring. Mm -hmm. To me at that age, I, I had no interest in being there because it was weird to see how level-headed everybody was. There were thousands of students interacting with their professors just leaning up against the walls, talking about politics, talking about economics, having a cigarette outside. It totally caught me off guard. Mm -hmm. And he thinks that it's sort of proof in the pudding. The level of maturity at that age for first, second, third year undergrads compared to what we tend to see here is completely different. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that has a little bit more to do with maturity and preparation for you know, undergrad and grad school and whether or not you integrate into society and into an industry. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Because the one thing I was surprised that when I came here with my, my husband's nephews and stuff, they went to university, but they they didn't really know what they wanted to do after university. But in the UK, people know what they want to do when they go. Like my, my, my niece wanted to be a speech pathologist. That's what she went to do. So they don't, you don't, here you have a lot of people who go to university and they do like a 
general science degree and then they would go into medicine or they would do a general arts degree and they go into law. Whereas that's the other thing in the UK, you can do law at 18 too, you can do medicine at 18, you can become a vet at 18. But a lot of the time in Canada, you have to do a general arts or a general science and then you can go into medicine, then you can go into law, then you can be a vet. So you spend a lot of time in school. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I'm not sure that you have better doctors and lawyers come out of the other end. <laughs> I I would definitely uh, agree with you yeah. on that one. And I th- I've interviewed a very close friend of mine on the show, Kale Sutherland, who is a lawyer. Yeah. He works with great lawyers, but I know after having a number of off-the-record conversations with him that there are tons of people who go through that industry in mm-hmm. law or in medicine because he interacts with doctors all the time. You just sort of ended up there. Mm-hmm. Don't really know why, but you know, it seems that they didn't really have that kind of driving catalyst, that burning desire to do something specific like cure cancer. Mm-hmm. So you've been working with a colleague of ours, Chris McPhee. Yes. A guy who I absolutely adore, who has been an absolute pleasure to work with for the last year now. He said something to me that was really fascinating. And I want you and the listener to keep in mind that when he said this, I was at my kind of formative stage in terms of my lack of understanding of computational perspectives on data ethics. I thought that for the most part, a lot of computer scientists don't think about ethics. The industry pressures them to get things done in a way that is not conducive to thinking about gray matter, right? So I'm sitting in Chris's office and he's got his whiteboard marker out and he's drawing all sorts of stuff as he does and it's incredibly invigorating to see him do this. And he he pauses and he sits down and he says something like this. Tom, this is why I'm convinced that artificial intelligence and machine learning will allow us to cure cancer within the next 10 to 15 years. What do you think? Oh, I think it will, yeah. Right now, they have, when I I first started at CIC and I talked with Chris, he said, right now, we have software applications out there that allow us to diagnose cancer. So, you know, you'll have many images, microscopic images, this is cancer, this is not. And then you teach the machine to recognize what's cancer and what isn't, and then you can, after it's seen many of these images, it's learned how to recognize this is cancer and this is not. So then you can give it a new patient's image and it goes, that's not cancer, or that is. But he doesn't see that it's such a big jump going from being able to diagnose cancer to being able to cure it. So it's a bit like the you know the incredible voyage that they had and they had that tiny little ship going through the, the body. It could be like that. So you know, instead of diagnosing right now as you do you take a sample and you look under the microscope in future, like they already do it for in, in endoscopy, for example, you can swallow a capsule and it will just take pictures of the GI system as it goes all the way through. So is it such a stretch that, you know, you can have this little vehicle go through the body and it can just detect cancer and do something about it? Wow. 
it's it's really compelling and, and invigorating to hear somebody else agree with this too, mm. because it, the problem seems so insurmountable, particularly because of the politics around a cure for cancer. Pharmaceutical industry in this continent doesn't want to see a cure for cancer. Mm. No, what they want is they want cancer to become a chronic condition so that you have to buy their drugs for the next 20, 30 years of your life. But if you have a cure for cancer, they lose that gravy drain. So, but right now, like my brother's an oncology pharmacist in the UK, and right now my fear is we could get a cure for cancer, but it's too expensive and we can't afford to do it. So right now they have a lot of the immunotherapy trials where, it's more specific than the chemotherapy or recognizing certain proteins and you can react to that. But as an oncology pharmacist, my brother has to make up a lot of these medications fresh, but he's telling me how many thousands of dollars it costs to treat a patient with this. And then I see programs on the TV too, where they're talking about, can we afford to? It, we have to do it more cheaply. Otherwise we're gonna have a cure for cancer and we can't afford it. And do you think that AI could make it easier or more affordable for us? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, you look at computing and the, how the costs of computing have come down. Like you think in the decades ago and you had huge rooms, that was the computer. Now it's tiny. So yeah, the cost, I think AI would make. And it, what I like about the AI approach is a different approach to like, we've been fighting cancer, trying to use the same tools. This is a different approach. We are talking here today with Karen in two capacities. As a professional, as a biochemist in PhD. Yes. But also working at the Center for Advanced Computing as a student. Studying what exactly? I, I really want you to unpack this for us okay. because for you to go from a biochemistry PhD in Cardiff? Yes to Kingston, Ontario, Canada, yeah. working at Queens, yeah. now as a student and also working the Center yeah. for Advanced Computing. How does this happen? How does this happen? Okay, so after I got my PhD, I went to work in the biotech industry. So I worked at Celtech and I was working there on research and development of um, drugs for asthma because a lot of the asthma drugs at, at that time were steroids. So we were trying to have a, an, a treatment that wasn't steroids. And uh, I really liked working there, um, but I was only in my early 20s and I thought, I can't see myself working here for 30 years. And I, I, the last year of my undergraduate, I had gone and worked in Poland and done a summer placement and working and living in a different country, that's the way you experience a different culture. And I thought in my early 20s, I'm too young to, to do one job for 30 years. So I went, that's why I came to Kingston to do a postdoc. So I looked at in the US, I looked in Australia, I looked in Canada, and I confess I did go for countries that where English was the first language because <laughs> my experience in Poland when I couldn't speak Polish. Uh, I yeah, I that's why. And and then I went to Canada and Kingston in particular. So there was a number of postdocs that I wanted to do because I wanted to continue the 
protein biochemistry, the enzyme inhibition, because I was still interested in drug development because, you know, I wanted to find a cure for cancer. Yeah, And I chose Kingston over other places in Canada, the US or Australia, because it's like, they all offer me the work side of it, but what am I going to do outside work? And Kingston is the freshwater sailing capital of Canada. (laughs) So that's why I came to Kingston. So (laughs) my supervisor... For my, for my for my postdoc was actually a sailboater, so he could, he told me a lot about Kingston and that they have a reliable winds. They have a thermal that comes in every day, and I went, oh, it's not all about work. You got to think about what you're Did doing. Did you put outside. in your CV or your application that you're a windsurfer? I do. In anticipation that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, you always have this dilemma: should I should I put my hobbies in, or do I make my resume just about work? But then I'm thinking from when I was at Celtech and we had to interview for someone to be my research assistant when I had my PhD, I think I want to know a little bit about this person. Like if all they do is work, I'm not sure we're going to have much to talk about. And so I always put in there a little bit about my hobbies, especially now I'm a bit older. I like to put my hobbies in there on the resume so they don't think that I'm too old to do the job. So if they see that I'm active and I windsurf and I cycle, they know she's still an active person. She's not too old to do the job. I can tell you with confidence after seeing you fly around (laughs) on that lake that day, you are fine. You're in better shape than I am, for goodness (laughs) sake. So you're here now as a postdoc. Yes. And also studying in... What so it, what so when, when I um yeah so then when I came here uh, yeah I did the postdoc in biochemistry so again I was doing enzyme inhibition we were kind of looking at diabetes and then I was only going to come for three years and I was going to go back to the UK and I was going to go back and work in the biotech industry but I met my husband what are you going to do when you're not in work you have to have somebody to, you enjoy their company so. I came for three years and I'm still in Canada and it's about 24 years later. So I'm now a British and a Canadian citizen. Beautiful. So so for a number of years, I worked as a, I after the postdoc, I was a research associate in pharmacology and then I went to the Department of Medicine. And initially I, I worked with Dr. Anastasiadis. He does arthritis and osteoporosis research. So I did a lot of lab research with him, but then the, the funding kind of dried up a bit on that. But his clinical projects his research coordinator was retiring so he said hey Karen you want to try and work with people instead of test tubes and be my clinical research coordinator so I did that for a few years it was osteoporosis research but as I say instead of being in the cell culture lab I'd be interviewing participants doing questionnaires with them doing some clinical testing but what I realized with the clinical research you do you collect so much data and then that's when I started, after doing this for a few years, that's when I went, I need to write computer programs to handle this data because they they don't think about the whole process. They think about, we wanna collect this information and they don't think about how to organize it and how they want to use it later. And I thought as a programmer, I can be more involved. Okay, you collect this information. If you If you handle it like this, it's going to be so much easier for you to do something with the data at a later day. And then for years, I procrastinated and said, I'm too old to go back to school. And then I just thought, if you want to do something, you should. So I went back to school. So I was tossing up, do I go to university and do a computer science degree? Or do I do the college course? So I talked to 
some professors at the college and the university. I talked to some friends and I decided I'm going to do the college course because I already have the credentials. I already have a PhD. What I need are the skills of programming and a college course is much more practical. And that's where I'm going to get the coding skills. So then I went to St. Lawrence College and I'm doing the computer programmer analyst course. And so it's a three year program. The first two years, you're just in lectures and labs. And then the final year, you do a placement with somebody in Kingston. And I'm doing my placement at Queen's Center for Advanced Computing. And it's exactly <laughs> why I went to school, which is to write medical to write programs for medical applications, in particular research. So what are you working on at the CAC? When we were talking earlier about the software development cycle, it's not all about writing the actual computer code. A lot of when you make a new application is a lot more time goes into the actual planning of the process. Mm. When you're developing a piece of software for a client, you will meet with them and you kind of make sure you're on the same page. What exactly do are they wanting to do? And then once you know what they want to do, how are you gonna go about doing it? So I've been involved in, so there's one project where I was actually writing the code that was for like a DNA sequencing project. And so there were a number of the other students and the developers at CAC working on that. But my particular role on that was to make, to just build the user interface and how it interacts with the database and the databases where all the information is stored. So that was my coding part. But a lot of the other projects I've been involved more, like the laboratory information management system, it's more, I was involved at the, in the software development lifecycle. You have like a requirements gathering phase, which is one of the very early phases. And it's because I've worked in a lab. So when you worked in a lab, what would it have been useful to have this software application do? So, you know, from the point of view of the clinical projects, it would have been very nice to log the sample, to, to give an ID to the sample, uh, and then you want to track it through the whole process. And then the, the other parts of that software, which, which are totally unrelated to the sample, are like <laughs> when you work in a lab, we would just look in the fridge and go, oh, we don't have much of uh, the serum left for the cells. We better order some more. But it would be nice if every time I took some serum out of the fridge that it would be automatically updated in the database that I now only have nine bottles of this. And when it gets down to three, I would get an alert to say, okay, you better go order this. So it's little things like that because I worked in a lab, you know, I was able to say, this is what I would uh, want this system to do. So from working with or learning about the software development life cycle into lab information management system, it's starting to make more sense to me <laughs> how biochemistry PhD working for decades in a lab yeah. would want to learn how to program yeah. her yeah. own software. Yeah, because to me, it's so often, like you have the lab person and then you have the computer person and the computer person knows absolutely nothing about this business. And I just think because of my medical background with the clinical projects and the lab projects, the projects I've been able to work on at CAC, I know what they want. So I'm not just some computer programmer straight out of school who knows nothing about the business. Uh. So I feel I can contribute a lot more and I can ask the right questions and hopefully I can deliver them a better product because I've worked there. I know, I, I've worked in that business. I know what I would have loved when I worked in the lab or when I was doing clinical research. 
The first time you and I spoke was at a joint meeting between the Surveillance Studies Center and uh, the Center for Advanced Computing. You were uh, in attendance with our colleague, Chris McPhee, mm -hmm. and we sat with my supervisor, David Lyon, and the staff here at the SSE to prepare for one of our, our seminars here at the SSE. So here at the Surveillance Studies Center, for those who don't know, we have bi-weekly guest speakers and they usually talk about surveillance and politics and surveillance and surveillance and surveillance and privacy but usually surveillance and uh, when we had all met recently we thought it would be really cool to have someone from the CAC come in and talk about lab information management systems because it was a cool uh, window into talking about data and algorithms and ethics. Yes. Yeah, because when I do the clinical research studies, you're collecting all this data, but this is somebody's data. You can't do whatever you want with this data. There's all kinds of ethics that has to be approved. So I, when I collect the data, I had to prepare, when I was the research coordinator, I had to prepare an application for ethics and say, I have collected this data and I would like to do this analysis on the data. So even though you've got two things going on, it's like you have this data, what can I do with this data? But also you've got this data can identify the person as well. So you're having to deal with that. So you want to, the, some of the data you collect is anonymous. Some of it you have to anonymize because not everybody needs to know this data is attached to patient A, this is attached to patient B. Somebody has to know because you might have to do a clinical intervention, but the people who are data, doing the data analysis do not need to know this is patient A. So you've got that side of the ethics that people shouldn't know who this data belongs to. But then even if you don't know who this data belongs to, should I be doing this analysis on the data? So when you're doing a research study, you have to apply for ethics and you have to say, this is what I want to do on this anon anonymized data. And they will look at it and say, you don't need to know that. It's, you know, even though you, it's not attached to a patient, why are you doing this? It's, you know, you have to say, I'm doing this because this could lead to a cure for cancer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ethics at every level. When it comes to algorithms and programming, where does ethics really start? When do we have to be thinking about these kinds of things? Yeah, is it so at the function of the, the algorithm? I think when you're looking at the social, the, the software development life cycle, it's, there's a number of phases, but each phase you would do testing, you would do documentation, and that's like accepted protocol, but I'd say, also, we should be considering ethics at each stage of the software development cycle. Though the one I really think about is once you have that software application out there and it's in production and people are using it, you can still make changes to that software. And the big thing that I think about now is, and that's called the maintenance phase of the software development cycle. So a lot of time it would be just to fix bugs. It doesn't work properly. Or you might want to add a new feature, but I'm saying a new feature that you might want to add. Right now, when we collect um, genetic information, that is anonymous data right now. But people are saying, 
within a few years, you would be able to identify an individual from that genetic information. So you kind of have to think about the kind ethics. of like reverse engineering. Yeah. So identity. you in that maintenance phase of the software development cycle, you now have to think about ethics. If there comes a point where what was anonymous data can now identify an individual, you'd have to go in and change. You'd have to add something to that software application that would now anonymize that data. Fascinating. So, so I think you have to think at all the stages of software development. You have to think about ethics what what can we do with this data how can we make sure this data cannot identify an individual i think a lot of people imagine that ethics when it comes to algorithms and machine learning happens during the function of the algorithm during mm -hmm. the process itself mm -hmm. When the algorithm's dealing with data, but we're talking about something completely yeah. different. When you're talking about the algorithm, that's one thing people are starting to question. So when you should, when you make certain decisions about what analysis should be done on the data, should that decision be left to the algorithm and the machine, or are there certain points where a human should make that decision? I see. And we know that humans are biased. Mm -hmm. And we're not all trained in the law. We're not mm -hmm. all trained in culture and politics and society. We're not all trained in protein mm -hmm. and cell structure and, and cancer research. Yeah. So there has to be a deferment to a certain kind of human as well. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine that programming in a corporate lab, for example, always puts ethics first. Yeah. So who who's who do you defer to? Yeah. Yeah, because it's like when we when they have the autonomous cars now, right? And they they've left it to the algorithm to, to decide: Do I run this person over, or do I run this person over, or do I just run the car oh, into? Oh yes, a philosophical. Yeah, but the yeah. machine is making that decision, which might not be the same decision that a human would make. What happens if in the future, the human is deferred judgment for a risky scenario, but they don't know how to drive because AI is doing all of the driving. Yeah. I know I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here, mm -hmm. but as you, you very astutely mentioned, there is a lot of fear, especially in the social sciences right now, that um, a lot of algorithm design being done by social media companies, by retailers and advertisers, by the big data industry itself, is not thinking about ethics first. So let's say hypothetically, uh, there's a situation where an algorithm is parsing information that's dealing with a new population, a new ethnicity it's never seen before. Does it make sense for the person that's being deferred to doesn't know anything about that population? Should that person be someone in HR? Should that person be a, a sociologist? Should that person be a politician? What kind of training should they have? I mean, what do we do? What sort of fail-safes do we put in place to ensure that the human-machine interaction is ethically viable? I'm thinking these are things that we would have to think at at the planning stage of the application. And you'd kind of have to, before you've even done any of the coding, maybe when you're making the application to the research ethics board, they would probably want to see that people from many disciplines were involved. Multidisciplinary yeah, approach. Yeah. yeah, fascinating. 
But and then that, that makes sense, makes perfect sense in the context of the university mm-hmm. because we can. Yeah, you've got all these people with different yeah. specialties. Here, here's you, and here's me. Yeah, sitting in the beautiful Mac Corey building. <laughs> the maze of a building. The maze of a building. <laughs> I, I'm kidding, folks. This is probably the ugliest building on campus, and Queens is otherwise a very beautiful campus. But we can walk down the hallway. Yeah, we can go talk to gender studies folk. Mm-hmm. Right around the corner from them. We can talk to lawyers. Mm-hmm. We can go the other way down the hallway and talk to political scientists. We can talk to anthropologists here. We can go down to the basement and talk to cultural studies folk. We can go across the street where the buildings are nicer and talk to yeah, some nice of your limestone buildings. The limestone buildings. Yes, that Kingston's and famous for. <laughs> talk to more people in biochem. And I'm sure we'd find some philosophers along the way. Mm-hmm. But it's not like that in, in big industry. They can pay. They, they can go to Harvard. They can go to Yale. They can go to uh, wherever it is that they want to go. They, can, they don't have to go to an Ivy League Institute. They can pay a professor to come in. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot less transparency in industry, especially pharmaceuticals, especially in programming for algorithms that parse data very aggressively when the end goal is profit and entertainment. This is the thing that, that drives me crazy at the end of the day. This is one of the most confusing things that I think about when it comes to data ethics in society. When there's an issue, how is it detected? Who's doing the detecting? Is it really a programming decision or a human thing? And then secondly, what happens when you don't have a well-trained human to make the right call? This is a very, very sticky situation. There's no right or wrong. It's always going to be a political outcome. But most corporate Boardrooms are not interested in hiring, you know, on contract 15 different professors to, you know, deliberate the politics of what happens when uh, a a new ethnicity from a previously um, unengaged population interacts with your product for the first time. What, What really do we do here? What's what is the kind of advice that we can give to big industry? And people outside the university when it comes to making good ethical calls when when software doesn't work mm-hmm. and a lot of time what happens in business is the governments end up having to legislate that they have to do this they have to include these people on the board because they won't do it themselves but if yeah if the government makes it a law then they'll do it And maybe sometimes the government is the one who has to be our social conscience. That's a frightening (laughs) prospect, isn't it? Yeah. This has been so fascinating, Karen. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming and chatting with us. Thanks for inviting me. It's fun. My pleasure. See you soon. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of What's That Noise? If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have a topic or guest in mind, don't hesitate to get in touch with Derek and Tommy on Twitter at WTNCast. Stay tuned for bi-weekly episodes and until next time, keep listening to the noise.